Welcome to Unconventional Thinkers. My name is Kawan Saluja. On today's episode, I will be speaking with Vitaly Buford. We will talk about her book, Addicted to Perfect, her unbelievable story of overcoming a 10-year addiction to Adderall, which she successfully hid from everyone, the perfectionism that fueled the alcohol addiction, and growing up in an alcoholic family. I really hope you enjoy our interview with Vitaly Buford. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Vitaly. Um, I was just talking, uh, you know, before we started recording, you have an, uh, just an amazing story. And the more I um, delve into it, the more interesting it got. Uh, could we, uh, I guess I'd want to first start, obviously, um, with your book. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, just kind of the amazing story um, with, you know, a perfectionism and Adderall and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so my book addicted to perfect is my memoir about how I overcame my 10 year addiction to Adderall. And really that was just a symptom of my, my lifelong overall addiction to perfectionism. And when I got sober seven and a half years ago, I just, I realized, you know, one of the first things I wanted to do was write a book mostly just because no one was really talking about Adderall addiction, but also no one was talking about perfectionism. And then more specifically, like as I wrote, as I like wrote the book, one of its intentions, because it's very real, <laughs> it's a very raw story, was to encourage people to own their stories. Because, you know, like all of us have been through things and we don't own our stories, right? We think, oh, had it worse or, you know, it, it hurts so bad that we don't even want to recognize it, right? We just push it down. And so for me, it was like, if I can keep it really real, <laughs> hopefully it'll inspire others to feel not alone and own their stories as well. When did you uh, first come across uh, Adderall and what, you know, I, I guess, what was the start of the addiction? Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, it was my addiction to perfectionism, which, you know, started in my childhood, um, right? Like everything that we're using as a coping mechanisms, you know, somehow relates to childhood or young adulthood. And so for me being raised by two workaholic parents and an alcoholic mother, you know, the times that I got love and affection were for external reasons, achievements being really thin for the way I looked, nothing was really for me as a person. And so I quickly learned like my outside achievements make me successful, right? My outside achievements are what determine my worth, not me as a person. And so to feel love and belonging, I pursued that, right? I pursued all the external, um, all the external features that we do, right? Self-worth, a certain salary, a certain career, a certain feedback, you know, certain relationship, salary, all those things. And so it was my junior year of college, and I had gained like the freshman 15, probably times two. And I was working two jobs, taking 18 hours. And the guy that I was seeing at the time had an actual prescription to Adderall. And he was like, well, why don't you just try this? And for me, it was the perfect drug. Before that, like because addiction runs in my family, I didn't stay away from alcohol, but I did stay away from other recreational drugs because I just knew that I probably developed some sort of dependency or addiction to them just because the, I mean, addiction was real. My sister <laughs> um, is in recovery, you know, like it is, it is in my, <laughs> my generational uh, line. And so I stayed away from everything, but then again, you know, it's, oh, this prescription drug, it must be okay. And it was the perfect drug for me. 
What kind of student were you in high school? I was a really good student. Like things didn't come easy to me, but I worked hard. I was motivated. Um, you know, like I always was achieving, um, very successful, but because I put the work in. And so for me, Adderall just made things a little easier. And more specifically, I really struggled with body image. And when I took Adderall, Adderall shut off all of my negative self-talk. Like I didn't have to worry about what I ate. I didn't even have to exercise because the weight just fell off. And so for like the first time in my entire life, I had no like negative body talk. Wow. Yeah. And no, because my I, mind was quiet, you know, like it was like, it was a reprieve. So quiet in a way that not even alcohol was. Yeah. Because alcohol was more just like, I was, I could be, you know, a little more free spirited, you know, but Adderall, because I lost weight so easy and I didn't have to think about it, I didn't have to worry like, oh, should I eat that piece of pizza? Or I need to work out. I need to do a two hour hit workout today because I had some cheesecake last night. It didn't matter because no matter what I ate, I stayed the same size. I was always thin. And so I was like, for the first time in my life, I didn't have to worry. I didn't have to like listen to all the negative self like body talk. Wow. Um, and can you also talk about the levels of like the, the, the uh, abuse? Because, you know, again, like, you know, as you'd mentioned, it's prescribed and it's helped a lot of people, I think in the ADHD world. Um, and then it's prevalent in college, but what was uh, the extent of uh, yeah. you know, your use? <laughs> yes, of- mine, was, mine was pretty intense. I've never, ever met anyone who took as much as I did on a daily basis. Um, you know, obviously it started at the regular doses. And, and for me, I'm not going to lie. Like I knew, like I was never diagnosed with ADHD when I finally obtained my own prescription. And this was like, what I've been sober seven and a half years. My addiction was 10 years so 17 and a half years ago. Right. There wasn't as much, um, there weren't as much rules around prescribing of this drug at that time. And so it was, I was wide ass open for lack of a, for lack of a better term. Um, but for me, I knew, I mean, I went as a drug seeker, like I got the prescription so that I could use it to work, you know, 28 hour days and stay really thin. It was never, oh, I think this will help me. Like I went, I knew that I had a problem from day one, like that this was going to be an issue. And so over the course of 10 years, your tolerance just gets higher, right? It goes from 20 milligrams a day to 40 to 60 to 100. And for me, it was ultimately 360 milligrams a day at the like height of my addiction. And that required four different prescriptions a month from four doctors, which is illegal. So I was doctor shopping. I was, you know, um, filling prescriptions at different pharmacies. One was under insurance. The rest weren't. Um, And again, this is when like systems were not communicating. States were not communicating. Um, And near the end of my addiction, those systems were starting to be implemented. So Adderall was getting harder to get um, and those sorts of things. But it was a full-time job. I mean, I was constantly thinking, you know, am I going to run out of this prescription? When is my next, you know, prescription fillable? And, you know, would have nightmares of the police coming to my door and arresting me for doctor shopping. I mean, I, it was, it was all consuming. Mind you, working a very high profile job as a director of, you know, a very prevalent like law firm. And so, uh, you know, this white collar job, everyone thinks I have it perfectly together. And then like, I've got a full-time side gig obtaining drugs. Yeah. And I, I think researching your story, I mean, it's 10 years, you're, you know, highly, highly functioning, at least by West, you know, Western world mm-hmm. societies. 
Um, how, um, how on earth were you like, did not any, you were able to kind of keep it to your own? Because I mean, there's certain, you know, addictions I think that are, can be pretty obvious to see, but like, uh, you know, uh, you're not the face of, I've been reading uh, John Bradshaw's book, uh, Healing the Shame That Binds, and he was a high, high, high achiever. So not someone um, who someone once said, you should, you know, take care of this toxic shame thing. So how were you able to, um, I guess, hide it um, from everyone within 10, uh, for 10 years, I, I think you said. So everyone professionally, because I started taking it at the end of college, when I started my, my professional career, people knew me as someone who worked ridiculous hours, who is very intense. I'm intense without drugs. So yeah. you can really imagine the intensity I had with Adderall. Um, I was, so people already, like, that's how they knew me. Like that was my personality. And, you know, it didn't really change who I was. I was just, I worked more hours. I was more, I was just in a, but I'm an intense, um, passionate person anyway. Um, and so it just sort of amplified that. And it was really probably more than, than working the number of hours. Like I would have friends that would say like, how do you work that much? How do you eat that and stay that thin? And I was like, oh, it just must be genetic. You know, thinking to myself, like, you have no idea. I just, you know, shopped two doctors. And then in terms of the doctors, they never turned me in because they would have gotten in trouble. Wow. So that's the only thing that saved my ass from that because, and, and they would, you know, stop prescribing me, right? Like I received letters in the mail that were like, we found out that you're working with other doctors. So our work together is terminated, but no one ever turned me in because they would have gotten in trouble because they never checked the state, you know, prescription system showing that I had all these prescriptions filled. So, you know, it would have, it would have put them at risk. Um, now one of the, what were the events? Um, I mean, it's the doctor shopping. Um, what were some of the events that kind of led to, um, you know, at, towards the end of the 10 year, uh, period, which you were addicted. Yeah. What were the things that led to yeah. that was pretty amazing. Yeah. So there's definitely like this, you know, one, like one, um, you know, very vivid memory and an instance that really transformed my life. So, you know, it was May of, 2014. And, you know, I've been doctor shopping, like it was just getting harder to get. Um, and I was running out and then I was buying it for my sister. You know, like I, there was, I was at the end of my rope, like the doctors had found out about each other. I'd received letters that were no longer going to, it was harder to get. People weren't just prescribing it freely. Like they used to it. They wanted like real ADHD tests, etc. And, um, it was one of those things where I was like, you know, this is not, I'm not gonna be able to continue this way. And when you're, for me, the detoxing off of Adderall, there was never really like a physical addiction. It was like deep depression because my identity was tied so much to my success. And I thought that I needed the Adderall to be successful. And so there was a deep depression. So I'd somewhat run out. I was in deep depression and um, but still obviously working my job. And so I had hired this executive coach to come speak to the attorneys at the law firm. And he had, he, we had worked together before. We weren't really close friends, but we knew each other. And so we were in the car together and he looks at me and he, he tells me this phrase and look, mind you, I have zero self-awareness at this point. Like I have been running wild with Adderall, like 24 seven work, achieve, achieve, achieve. So he looks over at me and I'm like driving him in my car. And he was like, you know, are you critical? And he's like, I saw you interacting with your team members, Vitaly, and you seem to be really critical of them. 
And I'm a perfectionist. So receiving any sort of feedback is like not my jam. Like I'm perfect, <laughs> right? Like I don't need, I don't want to, I don't need a re- annual review. Like I've got it down, right? So he tells me this and it's like a total hit to my ego. And I'm like, well, I must not be the perfect boss, right? And so he goes, no, no, no. And he could tell just by my facial expression and probably the change of the energy in the car. He was like, no, I think that you're, you're critical of your team because you're critical of yourself. And I was like, okay, like it still didn't hit me. And then he told me this phrase, and this is the phrase that changed my life. He said, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. And I had no idea what that meant. I'm like, he's like dropping all these knowledge awareness bombs on me. I have zero self-awareness. I'm running out of Adderall. I'm really cranky. You know, like it was just like this perfect storm. And so this information was just kind of like ruminating in me. And so the next week, my mother came to visit me. And she, I got home from work. She was at my apartment and I walk in and she's wasted. And I just got so upset, right? Like, why do you have to be drunk while you're here visiting me? You always do this. You're, you know, blaming her, pointing my finger. And then I remember that phrase that the coach told me, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. And it was this like most magical moment where I was like, I am pointing my finger at my mom to get sober. And yet I am refusing to get sober. Like I see in you what I refuse to see in me. And it was literally that moment where I was like, I've got to do something. And I remember getting down on my knees and praying for the very first time to God to do something about it. And literally a week later, I drove myself to rehab. Um, wow. That, I mean, does that, does that phrase, of, that's a very powerful phrase. Was, would, would you think that that'd be somewhat similar? I think I've heard the phrase, if you spot it, you got it. You you spot it, you got it. Most definitely when I'm doing trainings and leadership trainings, yes, most definitely. But you know, like a lot of people, we don't want to see that, right? We just want to criticize people. We want to point our fingers. And it's like one of those things, like when when we do that, it's just an opportunity for self-reflection. But yes, when you spot it, you got it. So I was spotting her addiction. I was avoiding mine. (laughs) And so that event led you to getting treatment in, in a week, that conversation. And correct me if I'm wrong, you were not actually, you had actually not had a coach at that point, right? You'd put that, that was just a conversation with a That was just a conversation. And he and I are such good friends right now. You know, like we actually, we just had a phone call last week or this week because I'm so like, I appreciate him being brave enough to have a hard conversation with me. Like he could have told me, he told me that and he was like, I had no idea if you were never going to talk to me again, but he had the bravery to say things that I didn't want to hear that forever changed me. And, you know, I, I think there's a saying that nature abhors a vacuum. You're a high achiever. You'd mentioned how Adderall just completely silenced the body image, which can be, you know, vicious voices. Yeah. Were you t- scared or terrified or what, like, you know, even, oh, if, yeah. even if it's a bad identity or a good identity, like you're going oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, uncertain. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't like, woo, you know, like I'm an out. Ad- so it was freeing. I'm super grateful for my mother because at that moment, like when she did sober up, I was able, like not that day, but a few days later, I was able to say, you know, I'm an Adderall addict. I was able to finally say it out loud. And, um, I was, I was super scared. I was scared because my identity was my profession. Like what I did for work was who I was. I didn't have an identity beyond that. And so I was so scared about what, about telling my bosses, what they were going to do and what that meant for my career. Like, am I going to even be able to achieve at this, at this level? Right. So I remember like going in and telling 
I had to tell like three different attorneys, like the boss boss and then my boss, you know, and all of them, you know, were actually, you know, really friendly about it. I probably because a lot of lawyers deal with their own addiction issues, period. <laughs> um, but again, a lot of people were like, Adderall, like, is that even a thing? Um, and so, and even when I went to rehab, right, like they were like, uh, like Adderall addiction, like, right. Like, so basically you're taking Advil and coming to, to rehab for it. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was scared. I was ashamed. I was depressed. Um, I was mostly freaked out about gaining weight, you know, like, what is this going to do for my body? So when I, so when I did, you know, after rehab, I really started developing a pretty severe, uh, eating disorder, you know, it's like switching whack-a-mole addiction, whack-a-mole one for the other. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a difficult period. Um, and then, uh, so you, you treated, um, the alcoholism, and then you got the, uh, then it, you were talking about the eating disorder. How did you, um, I guess I had a couple questions on that. How did you deal with that? But before that, um, you know, saying that you're, you know, addicted to Adderall, I think in like recovery circles, does that still make you feel like an outsider a little bit? Yes. Um, With regards. Which is one of the reasons why I wrote my book, right? Because when I went to rehab, like everyone looked at me like Adderall was not a big deal, except for when I told them like the milligrams that I've been taking. (laughs) When I told them I was taking 360 milligrams a day, they were like, how is your heart not stopped working? I mean, truly like you must be here on this earth still for a reason. Um, and I felt like an outsider, you know, like I, I felt like I didn't fit in at AA meetings. Um, and I stopped drinking, right? Like I think, um, I wasn't an alcoholic yet, but I was on the verge of it. So that's why I gave it up. I gave up everything like they recommended, but, um, I didn't fit, like feel like I fit in at AA. I didn't feel like I fit in, fit in at NA. And so, you know, I know that a lot of people say that all addiction is the same, but, um, you know, like it was, I felt like it was different and I felt really alone, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to write my book, because I was like, I know, I feel like Adderall addiction is a very private addiction. And it's a very silent addiction because it's perfectionism related and success and achievement related uh, for the most part. Um, And so, so yeah. Um, Where did you find that support group? That, you know, um, I didn't. Oh, Uh, because, and, and I still like, now people will come and work with me that are coming off Adderall or who used to be Adderall addicts because they just want someone to relate to. Um, but I never like in my early recovery, never met someone who was just an Adderall addict like me. Like, so there was no one, there are people who they use it on the side, but their primary addiction was alcohol or their primary addiction was cocaine or whatever. Um, and so I never, I never found that support. And so I always felt like an outsider. Did you, but what were some of the things that I think like helped your recovery, I guess, was if, yeah. if it wasn't for uh, this uh, support system, what was it? Yeah. So I did the 12 steps. So when I got out of rehab, I did two weeks of inpatient rehab, and then I did three months of outpatient. And so the outpatient rehab really helped, right? It was four nights a week for three hours. And so it gave me structure, right? Because I used to spend so much of my time trying to obtain drugs, fill prescriptions, go to doctors, you know, like it consumed my mind. I had so much free time on my hands. Yeah. And that allowed, you know, like it. it One job it, only. <laughs> right. So it supported me. I go, I get off of work and I'd go do that for three hours. So that was a support network. And then I worked the steps. Like I went to AA, I got a sponsor. I did those things. And that was good 
for I would say like the first year and a half. But the program that really supported me the most um, was Adult Children of Alcoholics. Um, it's I think the formal name is like Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, which is basically all of us. So that program is really what supported me because it's about you know dealing with the family dysfunction. It's about self-love and finding that and really uncovering all of the coping mechanisms. So for me, that was the program where I felt most supported. It wasn't Adderall, but it was about our childhood trauma and how to heal it. And uh, you know, your book is addicted uh, to perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. um, but could you, play, uh, you know, speaking of like the adult, uh, the, you know, being a child in a dysfunctional family, um, how does control, uh, you know, where does the control aspect uh figure in and how have you, um, you know, learned to let go of control? Um, Because, you know, sometimes I don't think the connection is that, you know, immediate. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's not. And it's one that I'm still working on, but I've made a lot of headway. So control came in when, you know, I was younger and my mother would walk out of the room sober and walk back in not sober. You know, control came in when I had no idea when my parents were going to come home as a child. You know, like when I'm alone, you know, like I wasn't in control of my schedule. I wasn't in control of the environment. And so I wanted to be in control, right? Because all of those, like my, my parental figures <laughs> weren't in control. And so that I believe is where like my control stemmed from, right? Like there was a lack of control. And so I wanted to create it, create it through perfection, achievement, praise, body image, whatever it was. Um, And that's, you know, that was what was the aha moment for me too. And I got sober and then developed the eating disorder. I was so pissed off because the eating disorder consumed just as much time as my Adderall addiction. And when I finally recognized I do have an eating disorder, I was like, I was pissed. I was like, I had been dealing, I was a freaking Adderall addict for 10 years. And here I am and you're, you know, two years sober and I've got a severe eating disorder. Like, what is the deal? And it was like control control is the deal (laughs) and perfectionism, right? They're, they're best friends. And so for me today, you know, one of the things that keeps me most sane in terms of control is the phrase, I can't miss out on what's meant for me. Like that phrase as a business owner, an entrepreneur, whatever, like I can't miss out on what's meant for me. And so it allows me to unattach from the outcome of things and allows me to, for life to happen for me instead of to me. And so that is literally the mantra that is my saving grace every single day. I take action and what's meant for me will not miss me. And if it misses me, it was never meant for me. Wow. And so that way of thinking is honestly like how I learned to let go of control you know, little by little, it's like, we're in a relationship. Right. And, you know, before I got married, I'm just, I'm a newlywed, but before I got married, I mean, there were some tough patches, right. Where it was like, are we going to work or not? And I had to come back to like, I can't miss what's meant for me. Like, I'm not, you know, trying to lighten, you know, relationship issues, but truly I was like, if this is the relationship that's meant for me, it'll work out. And if not, it won't, it takes the pressure off. It takes, you know, it allows me to be honest and know that if that person won't meet me in my honesty and my vulnerability, they're not meant for me. It just takes so much pressure off. So that phrase has really transformed my relationship with control. Um, 
there's um, that notion of like a false self, um, you know, that comes out of like, uh, you know, being born in an in a addiction or a, an alcoholic or dysfunctional family um, was getting married something that you had kind of put off um, or was not even a goal when you were in, um, you know, the Adderall thing, or is that something you always wanted or is that something that emerged? Um, cause it didn't sound like you had much time between, you know, yeah. The, so, the, yeah. The so it was really not a goal. Like now did I, I wanted men to want to marry me, sure. right? Because I wanted that like sense of control, the sense of, Oh, you love me so much. That makes me feel better. But I didn't really ever want to get married. You know, like I was never the person who dreamed of a wedding. Truly. Like I had no dream wedding. I had no, you know, like that's just not something. Now, obviously in my book, I was engaged to someone else and that really um, emotionally abusive, like difficult time of my life um, led, was a precursor to me getting sober. So, I mean, obviously I wouldn't change anything. Um, but I think for me, relationships and marriage were really just like, I just wanted, it was a, a, a an opportunity for validation, like really unhealthy validation. Like if you want to marry me, then I'm worthwhile. Like I'm worthy if I'm marriage material, but I never actually really wanted to get married. I just want you to marry me, but I don't want to get married. <laughs> but at some point it did become a priority. Like you're true, like, you know, in recovery, is that true or, or? Yeah. So, you know, it was, you know, so when I started, I, I was in a relationship that like when I was like in sobriety that I had been in before. Right. So there was a relationship um, that, you know, I had been, I was with someone before I got sober and we were still together. That relationship did not survive my sobriety because there were some issues with his own sobriety and, and the direction that I was going. So that, that didn't, but then the, the next few relationships in my sobriety were really special because it like I, for the first time in my life, I felt like I was myself, you know, like I was honest about things going on with me, you know, maybe like my financial history, the amount of debt I had, you know, like just I was able to be more honest. And so for me to finally like allow myself to be seen by someone was really, really special. Like to be very honest and have no skeletons in the closet, which for me as someone who was addicted to perfection, that was not something I did. I did not speak up for my needs. I did not need anything. I sure as hell didn't tell you about my alcoholic mom unless you were gonna meet her. I wasn't gonna tell you about, you know, like I did not reveal myself because to reveal myself would mean that I could get hurt or you're not going to like me and abandon me. And so as I've like, you know, I just got married and we started dating, I guess, three years ago. Um, you know, that relationship, I think relationships are some of our biggest um, transformation or <laughs> uh, places for transformation. Um, and marriage wasn't necessarily something that he and either and I wanted. We just wanted to spend our lives together. That's, uh, that's great. I will, I want to get to the, the coaching uh, eventually, but I wanted to first regarding um, this stage of recovery, were there any books uh, that, or do you have any favorite books in general that you recommend uh, on your path? Yeah. So I'm like looking around because I love books, especially since so do I do I. development. Um, so there's a really good book on anxiety and how to overcome it. And it's called the wisdom of anxiety that 
is a really profound book um, because I'm someone who uh, deals with anxiety on a daily basis and I manage it. Um, so the wisdom of anxiety is a really powerful book in terms of like understanding anxiety, being able to name anxiety and where it comes from and the reasons for it and, and tips on how to manage it too. It's, it's really profound. Um, honestly, all of the literature for the adult children of alcoholics program is, is really uh, life-changing. Like their workbooks, they've, they've got, you know, their Bible, if you will, kind of like the AA has their blue book. Um, uh, the adult children of alcoholics program has like this red textbook, if you will. And so that literature was really profound for me. And I would say, gosh, one of the books is an entrepreneur that I've been reading that I really enjoy, um, that keeps me going when I'm like, wondering what the hell I'm doing as an entrepreneur is <laughs> called inspired and unstoppable. Oh, okay. Like she's like a Harvard trained lawyer who quit lawyering and became this writer coach and her literature just speaks to me because it's funny and it just reminds me to keep going. Now on your path, uh, when did you start thinking about not only getting into coaching, but, you know, as you mentioned, being an entrepreneur, you know, being an yeah. entrepreneur. Yeah. So I never wanted to be a business owner because my mother was an entrepreneur. She owned a travel agency and had like 20 employees. And it just was miserable. Like as kids, we spent weekends at the office coloring. We had to go there after school. I mean, it was like, I'm like, this business ownership thing is not for me. I mean, I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. So it's quite entertaining. But a year after, a year into my sobriety, I was like, I can't work for lawyers anymore. Like, this is not, this is not jiving. My quality of life is actually a thing that I care about now. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? I don't really know what I want to do long-term, but I do know that I want to be the COO of a company someday. And I didn't know it was going to be my own, but I was like, I want to be the COO of a company. And I was like, you know, I need to learn more about HR and I need to learn more about finance. And I was like, HR sounds way more fun than finance. So I want to become an HR director. And there was a company that was looking for someone that had strategic, like someone with strategic thinking experience, but not necessarily HR experience, which was me. I love like in my StrengthsFinder report, like strategy is my top thing. I love like strategic thinking and culture change and, and such. And so I became the HR director and then they approached me about coaching the leadership team. They were like, oh, this will be, you know, like you should, you should coach. And I was like, okay. And I love all like sports movies. Like I love Rudy. I love coach Carter. I love remember the Titans. Like those are my favorite movies, you know, where you like transform a group of people and they start working together better. Like I've always loved those movies. And I was, I worked at the career center when I was at the university of Georgia, like help people with resumes and career coaching. So I always had that sort of in me. Um, so when they approached me, I was like, cool, but like, I need to get like actually certified. Like I can coach based on like my life experience, but like I need tools. So I became a certified coach and I started coaching people on the side for free just to help with my skills. And I was like, you know, this is what I'm meant to do. In fact, I read the book, You Are a Badass by Jen Sincero. And that book is what gave me the idea to start my business. And especially that you are a badass at making money. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like, and I'm the kind of person I, I have a high tolerance for risk, um, which is interesting as a perfectionist because most perfectionists don't. Um, but that's the one thing I guess that I'm, I can opt out of in terms of perfectionism. And so when I got that idea, I was like, I'm doing it. And I mean, I, I left corporate America <laughs> as a single mother 
no savings and started my business. I mean, it was like the scariest year of my life, but I would do it all over again to do what I get to do every day. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's very inspiring and courageous, but, uh, and, and so is writing your book. What would you say to your 18 uh, year old self? Gosh, you know, I think some of the best advice is I would just say like, allow yourself to evolve. You know, I think as humans, we think we need to have everything figured out right now. We need to know our life purpose and we need to have it all figured out perfectly. And we got to make the perfect next step. And it's like, you don't need to make the perfect step. You need to just take the next step. You know, like I never knew I was going to be a coach, but I did want to become a COO. And so I was like, well, what's the next step, right? And so just taking that, just following the breadcrumbs instead of needing to have the whole gingerbread house, right? Like I just followed the breadcrumbs. This next breadcrumb is, you know, becoming an HR director. And then the next breadcrumb was becoming a certified coach. And then that led me to entrepreneurship. And so I think it's allowing yourself to evolve, evolve in terms of how you feel, allowing yourself to change your mind. Like changing your mind is actually a strength but we don't always give ourselves permission to do that. It's like, we've got to know everything right now. And so I think in like my 18 year old self, early entrepreneurs, but everyone allow yourself time to evolve. What, um, what are uh, some of the uh, things you've discovered about yourself in the process of entrepreneurship? <laughs> Ooh, um, that's a really, really good question. Um, I would say that, oh gosh, um, you know, it has uncovered some of the ugliest parts of myself that I really didn't want to see. So in my first year of business, and I'm far enough away from it that I can talk about it, but at first I wasn't able to. When I first started my business, I was not service-driven. I was ego-driven. I was all about Vitaly, how much money Vitaly can make and what you can do for me. And it was survival right? Like that's just what I knew. Like I needed to survive. I needed to make money. And so I was focused on protecting me. I wasn't focused on service. And it was a lot of really difficult lessons, right? Like it was no clients. It was, I mean, it was some really hard lessons and real stripping of my ego um, and a lot of humility. And I would say that <laughs> becoming someone who is self-centered to service-centered has been, I would say the transition that I'm most proud of. Because, and even being able to talk about it, I mean, I had so much shame about being Vitaly focused when I first started my business. Um, but that's, you know, like that's part of it. <laughs> and so for me, I would say that is the biggest piece of transformation. I would also say, you know, just again, letting yourself evolve, right? Like I started my business doing life coaching. That's not what I do today. Like, I do a lot of work around perfectionism and specifically I do leadership. Like I finally allowed myself, I was like, oh, like during the pandemic, I received the sign that it was like, oh, I'm not supposed to be coaching the general public or even doing any programs for the general public. I'm supposed to be doing my programs in corporate America. Like that, because I love culture change. It's where my history is. And so I get to marry like my coaching with my leader, my love of leadership change and culture change and difference making. And so allowing myself to involve, I would say also, like, if there is one thing like persistence, I will always persist. 
Like I am not giving up. I will cold call. I will pitch a program, you know? Um, and I think doing scary things too. So another thing, cause a lot of people are like, well, how did you become a good public speaker? And I didn't start off as speaker. I was scared shitless, excuse my language about speaking. Like, but I knew that if I wanted my message to impact more than one person, I was going to have to learn and have confidence in public speaking. And so when I started my business, I created a signature speech and I literally called like 56 businesses and gave them free speeches. I, I literally cold called businesses and was like, can I give you a free workshop? Can I give a leadership workshop to your employees? And I just practiced until like my fear of public speaking was gone. What, um, wow, that is, uh, <laughs> that, is, that is really awesome. What were some of the, uh, uh, cre- uh, like, when did you, did you always think you were going to write a book? Was there some event that forced you to write a book or was that always a plan, a dream of yours? What were some oh, of- like, I knew I was going to write a book. I would say year two of sobriety. And this was me. This was pre me becoming a coach. This was pre me starting my business. Um, I was like, you know, I'm going to write my story. And I was, I was committed to that. I was committed to getting a publisher instead of self-publishing. Um, I was, I, I was going to tell my story and I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm just evidence that it's possible for anyone. Like one of my missions in life is to do really cool, scary shit to prove to other people that they can do it too. Like I'm not special because I wrote a book. I just get stuff done and it's possible for anyone else. Like any dream that someone has, it's not happenstance. Like you have that dream for a reason and you have the power to make it happen. And so indirectly, like some of my purpose for like what I do is to like, I'm just proof that other people can do it. Well, I mean, I I just, um, I just really appreciate your raw honesty and courage. And I think it's helped a lot of people, but I think it's going to help a lot more people. Where can people find you, um, um, information on your book and other, other, other things? Yeah. So my book addicted to perfect is on Amazon and it's on audible. Um, I'm most active on LinkedIn. I'm taking like a little break right now on social media, but LinkedIn, um, you can find me and you can also find me on my website, but LinkedIn, I'm most active. And, um, my personal email is super easy. It's just Vitaly at gmail.com. So, um, I'm easy to connect with. So yeah, reach out. Uh, but thank you so much, Vitaly. This is, uh, so, uh, engaging and, uh, would love to interview you again. Awesome. Thank you for having me. A huge thank you to Vitaly. Such an amazing lady, such a powerful story of courage. And she has inspired many and will continue to inspire many. I love the advice about it's okay to evolve. And I admire her raw honesty. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. It will help grow the show. Until next time, this is Kawan Saluja reminding myself to always be growing spiritually. Spiritually.